Welcome to episode number 133 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast where we're building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. In today's episode, we're talking about implementing inherently safer design using bow tie analysis. And we're doing that with a very special guest, Dr. Paul Amiot, professor from Dalhousie University. Paul, welcome back to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Thank you very much, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. I'm really excited to have Dr. Amiot on. Um, we had him on in episode 53, so I think that would be 80, if my math is right, episodes ago, talking about the Methods and Chemical Process Safety Volume 3 uh, guidebook or industry guidebook on dust explosions that he wrote with uh, Dr. Faisal Khan. I'm not going to go into his lengthy list of accolades and contributions in the fields of process safety, inherently safe for design and dust explosions, because I did that back in episode 53. One, I guess, important note or thing to pull out is that he was the co-supervisor on my academic thesis. I'm the main academic lead, and really, I would be remiss if I didn't say inspiration into where I started getting into combustible dust and, and just introducing me to this field um, about a decade ago, if we can we can believe that now. So, Paul, I want to I want do want to start by saying thank you for that and thank you for the work that you've done in these fields for combustible dust. For today, we're talking about inherently safer design. We're talking about bow tie analysis. This is the third in a series of interviews that we've done all around this batch or collection or collective of work being done out in British Columbia, then here on the um, East Coast and Halifax as well, with the Woodpell Association of Canada, with BC Forest Safety Council, BC FSC, and WPAC, um, supported through WorkSafe BC, with Dalhousie and with Dust Safety Science. We had Gord on two episodes ago talking about WPAC and their history how they built up their safety committee, what kind of projects they took on. We had Sherry on last week talking about BC4 Safety Council, talking about the Critical Controls Project. And then we have Paul on this week talking about this sort of third arm, which is a research project that's really coupled and fit into the Critical Controls Project, brought you know some of the research side into the safety committee for um, WPAC. And really just, I don't know, I, I will get Paul's feeling on it, but it's really made this powerful collective of multiple stakeholders tackling these problems for the wood pellet industries. And then my hope is we can also pull this out and replicate and duplicate it in other industries and other parts of the world as well. So that's the the background, I guess. In this episode, we're going to talk about inherently safer design, bow tie analysis, which Sherry talked about quite a bit last week in her podcast episode, this WorkSafe BC Innovation to Work project, and how this is all really tied into critical controls and tied into the work being done at WPAC and BCF FSC. Paul, I said I wouldn't do a long introduction. I did, but I also mentioned I wouldn't do your accolades and research and the work that you've done over the last uh, many decades in this field. What I'd like to know, because I don't think we covered it last time, is just how did you get involved in process safety and combustible dust? Like, what's the starting of it for you? And then we'll sort of fast forward to this current research project that we're talking about today. Sure. Well, thanks again, Chris, for inviting me to be here. Uh, nice to be a repeat customer. I guess that means. The first time went went sort of okay, so uh, it's it, no seriously. It's really nice to be here, and um, I just want to acknowledge the work that you did uh, on your PhD and go, going forward. I, I've been very impressed with how you've you've really run with this whole field of uh, dust combustibility, and particularly the educational side of of this, and because that's that's been a an issue that I've seen for a number of years is closing that gap, that knowledge gap between you know, researchers and practitioners and, and even the general public. So 
just kudos on that. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I guess it kind of ties in a bit of a segue back to my start with combustible dust. And that would go back to my own uh, doctorate or doctoral research back many decades ago, as you so kindly put it, uh, when I was at the Technical University of Nova Scotia as a PhD student uh, working with Mike Pegg, who was also involved in, uh, in your uh, PhD research. And I was working in a pretty fundamental area of uh, combustibility, uh, measurement of burning velocities by, by different methods and kind of, you know, uh, stalling a bit, as you sometimes do in your PhD research. And uh, Mike was interested in this new field or new field to him and me of, of dust explosions. So I picked that up and a couple of years later had uh, had done enough work to uh, to defend my thesis. And that was retired. And I sort of took it and ran from there. Um, have always been interested in, in dust explosibility. I would say it was about 10 or 15 years after 86 when I finished my PhD. And I, I began to realize that it's not just the fundamentals of dust explosions I was looking at. It was actually a part of process safety, this, this uh, branch of industrial safety where you're, you're trying to prevent major fires, explosions, and toxic releases. So I, I was able to start to relate more of what I was doing in the dust explosion world to the general process safety world. And I really credit um, someone I know you've read uh, uh, quite a bit about and and have a high opinion of, and that's Trevor Kletz, you know, uh, the father, uh, we would say, of inherent safety, and also uh, one of the fathers, uh, uh, godfather, if you like, of uh, process safety. So I think it, it has just sort of gone on from there, and I've started to look at other areas of process safety and try to tie in this concept of inherently safer with what we've been doing on dust explosions. So, yeah, I've been at it for a while. It's, it's, it's been a lot of fun and it's a great opportunity to work with, you know, inspirational people like yourself and others in this field, Chris. I really appreciate it. And if anyone's interested in, in, in Trevor Kletz's work, I mean, the, the textbooks and the, the technical side of what he's done, there's uh, too many books to count, but there's a, a really good, I don't know if it's an autobiography or just a, I think it is an autobiography, actually, but it's called "By Accident: A Life Preventing Them in Industry." And that will give you a really nice insight into Trevor Kletz's life and what brought him into process safety, working at ICI. Would that be the name of the company? It, yeah, I I think at the time it was it was ICI Imperial Chemical Industries. I, I think it's one of those names that now is just ICI. They still exist in in some form and and have gone on to other named companies, but. Yes, it was uh, ICI where Trevor worked back uh, back in the day. Yeah, I like that's a good. Uh, I don't know if you, if you're into Trevor Kletz's work, if you're into process safety, and you're you're into inherent safer design, to see how that built up, that's a really good autobiography. And it was kind of when I read it, <laughs> I, I realized that he started with creating this newsletter, and that was about two years after I created our newsletter for dust safety science. And I was like, ah, oh, this is exactly how. I mean, it was it was different. It wasn't email. <laughs> But uh, yeah, anyway, there's lots of similarities on how that kind of came about. But I think the core is a couple things. One, and I don't want to speak for Trevor, I'll speak for myself. One of the challenges I saw was communication between the different stakeholders as a challenge. So that's where a newsletter and communities and that really came in to fit in. I think that's kind of what you pull that Trevor Kletz out autobiography as well. And talking about your history a bit, I mean, you mentioned that you were doing fundamental type research for many years and realized at some point that, hey, this fits into industrial application. This fits into this world of process safety. And it's really interesting seeing that light bulb go off even in young grad students today. I say young grad students can be really any age from 
well, from, from 15 to, to 55. But, uh, you know, it's interesting to see, okay, I'm doing this fundamental research. Oh, it actually has industry application. Why am I doing the research this way and starting to close that gap? Yeah, that's a that's a great point, Chris. And I I think that's why I like working on um, you know partnership projects and my research where you you partner up with uh, with an industrial company and particularly the the grad students working on the project they they get to see the direct application of of the theory and of their research. Yeah, it really helps to create grad students that are well rounded, functional, and just plug right into industry because they've already been working with industry. Absolutely. Okay. So, I mean, those are some of the early days. Again, I did talk a lot in episode 53 on a lot of the research that, that Dr. Ema has done, some of the work that he's done with with me, certainly, in, in my supporting my academic work and my direction. Today, we're talking about inherently safer design. We're talking about bow tie analysis and how this fits in with critical controls, um, which Sherry's talking about last week, it fits in with WPAC and the work that they've been doing as well. So I want to kind of I don't really care about the definition. I don't need a textbook definition, but like generally, you know, what is inherently safer design? If somebody's listening to this and going, I'm not sure what that means. And then, you know, what is bow tie analysis? And that really lay the groundwork for the discussion that we're going to have. Sure. Um, well, I think inherently safer design, first I would make the point, Chris, that it's uh, people refer to it uh, as a way of thinking. It's a design philosophy. And it's, it's basically about within the hierarchy of controls, you know, the basic ways we can deal with hazards to first look to see if you can deal with the hazard at its source. Eliminate the hazard, substitute other materials, minimize uh, inventories and so on before going to add on uh, safety devices, which, you know, passive or active. Uh, and then before getting to uh, safe work procedures, all of which are needed, of course. And, but uh the basic idea is, is to first ask yourself, can, can I deal with this hazard at, at its source before I add on devices and, and procedures? And you mentioned, or we mentioned Trevor, Trevor Klatz, and it really goes back to Trevor. You know, I, I've said before that the principles of inherently safer design or ISD have been around forever. They're like the, the laws of conservation of mass and energy. You know, they, they've existed and they haven't changed. But, but Trevor really first brought attention to formalizing and, and naming some of these principles. And that was in response to an incident in the mid-70s in the UK at Flixborough, which was a caprolactam plant, a nylon intermediate. And after uh, Trevor was really the first person to say, yes, we have, we're adding on procedures for safety devices and new regulations, but let's ask ourselves, do we really need these massive uh, of house materials. And he ran from there, late 70s, great paper, uh, What You Don't Have Can't Leak, which summarizes ISD beautifully. And, and it's sort of gone on from there. It, it's a bit self-serving, uh, perhaps, but I want to draw attention to a paper that you mentioned my research partner, Faisal Khan. Uh, we've just published in the uh, Canadian Journal of Chemical Engineering. And, and I mentioned it because it's open access. We purposely did that. It's a review of, of our research on inherently safer design over the past 20 years. Well, 20 years ago, we published an early paper in the Canadian Journal of Chemical Engineering on the uh, status of ISD at that time as we saw it. So this is a follow-on. We, we wrote this at the request of the editor of the journal. And uh, not that we think we've done great research. We're not promoting the research so much as promoting open access to the principles of inherent safety. So that paper's out. It's open access. Anyone can, you don't have to have a subscription to the journal. You can go and read it and 
and see what we think inherent safety is all about. So that's my rundown of ISD, Chris. I hope that makes sense. Um, it does. And I'll, I want to cut in with a couple of things. One is the paper, The Role of Inherently Safer Design and Process Safety with the Canadian Journal of Chemical Engineering. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, sorry, I, I didn't give the paper name there. <laughs> See, a little bit of modesty. I didn't want to name the paper title, but that's it. Absolutely. So I'm going to I'm gonna one-up that. If folks want to get that, um, I just found the link and you can get it at dustsafetyscience.com slash 133. Um, and since it's Oakman Access, Lovely. I just click the button and it gives it to me, which is is rare <laughs> for, uh, for academic journals and, and not that cheap to do, but that's good. I, the, well, you got it. Um, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a few thousand dollars, but we considered it a good use of research funds. And, and I will say it's the first and well, may well be the only paper that I'll, I'll make open access. But we just wanted to promote ISD. And really, in doing that, we're, we're trying to pay respect to Trevor Cutts. Yeah, I love that. And I wanted to add a, like a simple, I think this might be from Trevor's autobiography or some of the other books he's read, but a simple example of inherently safer design. Say you have elderly parents and they live in a home with you know two levels and you're really worried about them falling down the stairs. Trevor would say that a lot of folks would put new rails on, maybe put some engineered gliding system, maybe you have a helper come in, maybe you have some procedure, you got to do this before you go down the stairs. But it might be more effective just to move them to a single level dwelling and, and avoid falling down the stairs. Um, that's a really good example of maybe substitution or maybe elimination. But you know, when I when I saw the examples like that, it really makes sense. You know, you can invest all this energy and mental space and time in I won't say fixing the solution, but putting uh, engineering passive and active controls in place. Or is there a way just to get rid of that hazard altogether? And that's, I think, in the spirit of why you why you don't have can't leak. Yeah, that's uh, that's a great example. In fact, we 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 put that in the paper. You know, Trevor was such a good communicator. <clears throat> you know, and an example like that just says so much about inherent safety because it speaks to the life cycle aspect as well of a chemical process. Um, you know, if you're going to build a new new host for your elderly parents. Um, and you build a two-story house; it's 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 a bit late, right? <laughs> yeah. To be to be removing stairs, so you want to think of it early in the design life cycle. And and then, of course, there's always trade-offs in uh, in hazard analysis. You, if you live on a floodplain, uh, you might not want to live in a one-story house, and you might want to not locate that house, you know, too close to the source of water type thing. So there's trade-offs too when it comes to inherent safety. And and if I just make one final point on ISD, Chris, I think that. You know, people will often, uh, if they have a problem with ISD, it's it's that they think myself and others who promote ISD are saying, look, just do this and it'll solve everything, right? It'll cure all of your problems, but it won't. We're not saying that. We're just saying before you automatically dismiss ISD and jump to adding on safety devices, ask the questions. Ask the questions. Can I minimize inventories? Can I substitute a different material? And many times you can't. I mean, particularly in the world of chemical process engineering, it's hydrocarbons. That's your product. You can't substitute the hydrocarbon per se, but there may be other opportunities to substitute. So that's what we're saying, Chris. Just just please ask the, ask the ISD questions. Love it. Okay, well, let's go to the second half of that then. This episode's on ISD and also bow tie analysis. What is, and Sherry gave some of this information already, so the, the listeners will have some background. But from your perspective, what is, what is bow tie analysis? Well, bow-tie analysis is a, is a form of what we would, in the chemical industry, call PHA, process hazard analysis. It, it's not just hazard, it gets into risk as well, because um, 
you know, you might bring in a risk matrix to decide on whether you need uh, additional safety measures. Um, and But the nice thing about bow tie is that it's a graphical technique, right? It, it gives you a picture. You're not dealing with tables like in a what-if type analysis. Now, and what-if has a lot of good purposes as, or uses as well, but I like bow tie. It's um, the knot of the bow tie. You've probably gone through with Sherry and others is uh, the hazard, and uh, that will lead to a top event, an undesired event, something you don't want to have happen. Often it's a loss of containment and a release of materials. And uh, you'll have threats, things that can lead to that undesired event, and the undesired event will, will produce consequences. So between the threats and the undesired event and between the consequences and the undesired event, we place barriers or safety measures. Preventive barriers um, on the left-hand side as I'm looking at a bow tie between threat and uh, top event and mitigative barriers between threat and consequence on the, the right-hand side of the bow tie. Then we have to remember that safety measures can fail. So we have what are called uh, degradation factors. If uh, PPE, personal protective equipment, is one of my preventive barriers or sort of mitigative barriers, I have to remember that I'm, people might not wear PPE. So there's a degradation factor. So how can I control that degradation factor, uh, training, education, et cetera? So uh, every barrier has a degradation factor and every, barrier, uh, every degradation factor has a control measure. I think that's the way you have to look at, at a bow tie. You, you don't want to produce a bow tie that just has... Uh, Threats, barriers, top event, barriers, consequences. You have to look at how those barriers can fail and then how we can try and uh, and prevent them from failing. So to tie in ISD with bow tie analysis, um, we want those barriers to be inherently safer. We at least want some of to see in the bow tie uh, some of those barriers being thought of as uh, minimizing, uh, moderating, substituting, simplifying, and so on. It may be the barrier itself, or it may be the degradation factor control. So if we have a procedure as a, as a barrier, people might not follow the procedure because it's too complex. If we can simplify the procedure and make it easier to understand, then we're bringing an element of inherent safety into, into the procedural safety level. So that's what we've been trying to do in our recent research, Chris, is tie in, I use the term explicitly, I want to see it right there, front and center, explicitly incorporate inherent safety concepts into bow tie analysis. Yeah, and I'll give like a kind of a, for those that are that are not so familiar with bow ties, um, I'll give sort of a, maybe a practical example of some of the elements, which will hopefully lay the, the groundwork for things we're going to discuss. So we have the the hazard and the top event. You can think of a top event, let's say uh, a dust explosion in a dust collector. So on the left side, if you're looking at the bow tie, you'll have all your threats. Um, what can cause and lead to that dust explosion? On the right side, you have all your consequences. What are things that can happen? So you can have rupture of the vessel. You can have impact on environment. You could have impact on personnel. Um, that's all on your consequence side. And then the, the real interesting piece, actually there's a lot of interesting pieces, but one of them is the barriers that you put on your threats and on your consequences. So barriers on a threat, Example might be spark detection. Um, that's a way to prevent that top event from occurring. Um, taking this, the threat of a spark getting entrained into the the dust collector, uh, causing explosion. That's a barrier you could put in place. On the other side, you could put venting on your explosion. So when an explosion happens, you vent the vessel so that you don't get vessel rupture, and that's all good. So you do that, and you get this nice bow tie, and it's got all these um, controls. 
And then a lot of people, if they're using bow tie, that's one part. But if you're not using bow tie and you don't have this graphical app, this graphical way to look at it, you probably think you're done. <laughs> but then that's really where these degradation factors and controls of of these barriers come in. It's like, well, how what ways can the the sensor fail? Well, maybe the or sorry, what ways can the the spark detection fail? Well, maybe the sensor gets dirty. That'd be a degradation factor. That'd be something that you need to clean up over time, make sure that the sensors are clean so that you it's there to operate as a barrier when it's called upon. Um, same with the venting. You know, if a vent panel ruptures, then you need to replace it. Otherwise, that you know degradation factor, I guess, would be one or zero. I'm not sure which way it goes. But the, the thing's not going to work the second time if it's already ruptured. So there's, there's you know, a, a different way of looking at that, these degradation factors. And then the part that I really like that you mentioned with inherently safer design is, okay, well, let's look at each threat line. Let's look at each control. Let's look at each degradation factor and ask the questions. Can we eliminate, substitute, simplify, or, or reduce, if I got the four, the four inherently safer design elements right? I think I mixed one up, but that's okay. You're asking those questions on those threat lines. Can we get rid of this threat altogether? Maybe you have a hammer mill upstream and you don't need that hammer mill anymore. If you remove that hammer mill, you're not going to have sparks coming down the line from the hammer mill, which will reduce the threat. Similarly, looking at all your degradation factors, you can start to ask those questions about, can we make this inherently safer using these questions? I don't know, Paul, does that sound like a good summary? Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's that's an excellent summary, Chris. And I think ha- the hammer mill is a good example in, in this particular project for us where you can you can bring in the principle of simplification. Some people would look at this as uh, passive safety. You, you make the mill robust. You It's strong enough to withstand any resulting overpressure because... You know, hammer mills are, are prone to experience dust explosions. So, you know, there's inherent safety or passive safety right up front. But then you have to protect uh, upstream and downstream. So you're going to have vents and you're going to have isolation measures and so on. So it's not that ISD does everything, but it's an important part of the of, of the puzzle. And you want to do that first. So that's in our bow ties. <clears throat> we're trying to go through this hierarchical arrangement of, you know, the threat. And then we'll consider inherent safety first passive, active, procedural, and then we have the top event, and then reverse that order again, inherent safety, and so on uh, through to the consequences. And I'll reiterate a point that you, you made. It, we're not saying that you're going to be able to solve, you're not going to be able to re, um, completely reduce the top hazard or the ha, uh, reduce the hazard or remove the top vent using just ISD, but it's like a systematic approach. You ISD, passive engineer controls, active engineer controls, procedural, if you apply that, you're always getting a you know a inherently safer design at the end of the day that you would if you don't ask those questions right up front. No, that's right. And I mean, I, I can think of one chemical plant uh, example that I, I've, I've been involved in where you know they were handling a very hazardous chemical, and there were there was talk of eliminating the use of the chemical, but they wanted it for their final product. It was an intermediate, so they I call it they armored up. You know, they um, concrete bunkers and uh, all kinds of passive, active, and procedural safety measures. Um, reputable firm comes in, does the uh, risk assessment, and they conclude that the risk is acceptable by whatever acceptability criteria they were using. I mean, I think we have to accept that, right? They, they chose not to eliminate, not to go the inherently safer route. They used other measures, and, and they drove the risk down as low as reasonably practicable. So there's a, an example where... You know, the other levels in the hierarchy um, turned out to be quite effective in reducing risk. Yeah, um, I think it's a great example. So we talked a bit about this this thought process then, which is incorporating inherently safer design 
into bowtie analysis or using bowtie analysis. I want to talk about some of the work that's already been done here through, you know, done today uh, up till this point. But I, I do have to ask, like, where did this idea come from in terms of was someone just looking at a bow tie one day and said, hey, we should apply ISD on these barriers? Or like, what's the, the story there? If I told you the idea came from the fertile mind of Pauline, yeah, would you believe me? <laughs> well, I, yeah, <laughs> I would. Don't answer, answer that question. It wasn't quite, it wasn't so much a, a you know, Trevor has some great writings about, he said a few light bulb moments. So I, but this wasn't a light bulb moment so much as it was, uh, it was sort of a natural evolution of what we've been doing over, I would say, the past 20 years in our, our research team. Myself and Faisal Khan, uh, I had the opportunity to work on the, the second edition of Trevor's book on inherent safety before he passed away. So, you know, that was a great privilege and a great learning experience for me. So maybe about 20 years ago, I began to think that we're looking at inherent safety as, as a standalone concept. You know, it's something that's nice. It's out there. We should use it. But, but that's really it. So consider it when you can think about it uh, when you think about it. And I thought we, we really need to bring inherent safety more, and here's the word again, explicitly into process safety management. So we did some work uh, maybe 15, 20 years ago that started us down this path where we looked at ways to incorporate inherent safety into process safety management elements, You know, whether it's a 12, 16, or 20 element system that you're, you're working with. And... We got to PHA, not an element, but a component uh, more of, of process safety management, process hazard analysis. So we thought, how can we bring inherent safety thinking into a what-if table uh, type of analysis? So we, you know, checklist questions and are the recommended measures working through the full hierarchy of controls so that you're considering inherent safety measures and so on. So uh, a couple of years ago, Kaylee Rayner-Brown, who, who you know, Chris, and I think she's been on uh, a couple of presentations, uh, Dust Safety Science and Dust Academy, Kaylee started her master's. And I said, look, I, I have this notion of, of looking at another PHA technique, bowtie analysis, and getting inherent safety in there front and center. And she just took it and ran with it, did a great job. And she's still with our research team as a research associate. And... Um, yeah, we're working now with WorkSafe BC on the uh, in the wood pellet industry. We're also doing some work on bringing inherent safety into bow tie analysis with the uh, provincial health authority. We have some uh, funding from NSERC through an alliance grant there with with the uh, health authority. So looking at the in the current pandemic, the coronavirus as the hazard, COVID nineteen uh, infection as the top event, threats, consequences, barriers for different receptor groups. And we have a master's student, uh, Lauren Turner, who's working on that with uh, with me and Kaylee, and Peter Van Berkel from uh, Industrial Engineering. So it's kind of steamrolled a bit. It's it's been a very busy year with bow ties and and inherent safety, but I would say it goes back as well, probably about twenty years when we started trying to look at inherent safety as more of an integral component of process safety management. Yeah, it makes sense, and just even I can see starting with the what if which is a, another, you know, PHA or risk assessment approach, uh, a tool in the toolbox saying, okay, how can we integrate ISD into that? And then sort of going down at different tools and with bow tie analysis, it, I, I like bow tie analysis because you get a nice picture at the end of the day, you can present the picture. It takes a lot of work to create a good 
picture. It's like computational fluid dynamics, which was my field. <laughs> you can make really nice, pretty images and, and what's the word for it? Colorful fluid dynamics. It does take a lot of work to, to get to the nice picture and to validate that it's physically accurate. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it's the same thing with the bow tie, uh, but it's a good tool once you have a good one done then to start adding in these different layers. Um, you mentioned Kaylee. We certainly will, we will have Kaylee on talking about bow ties in the future on the podcast. We're thinking of doing some more on on this sort of batch that we did um, in a few months' time once the, the product's a little farther down the tracks and this phase is finished. Um, we've had her in the Dust Safety Academy doing trainings on bow ties. She's done a presentation or a webinar with with WPAC and BC4 Safety Council, which will be released through their camera, the name of Fundamentals Training Series. And that will be out probably by the time this episode's out. Sherry talked about that last week and there will be links in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 132 for that episode. So we, we walked through, we're at the point now where Kaylee's done her work. Um, it was kind of interesting at the same time, and this goes into what Sherry talked about last week, they had that critical controls project where they were going and trying to do bow ties at at several facilities to get industrial bow ties or industry-wide sort of bow ties and then validating them at a site level and really looking for expertise in, in this type of uh, process hazard analysis, type of risk assessment methodology, this tool. And it was really seemed to be a good partnership with the work that you folks are doing and a nice way to give the inherently safer design aspect a really palatable physical, uh, another palatable and physical industry to, to test it out in. I know you mentioned that you're doing with um, COVID-19 infections, which I, I, I actually want to see that work myself because it sounds really interesting. Um, but it seemed like this was a nice partnership. So where did the, the WorkSafe BC Innovation at Work Project fit in? How does this kind of fit in with you know critical controls and the stuff that they're doing out West? Good question, Chris. Um, if I could, I just want to just go back for a brief moment to, I, I, I'm a little concerned that I'm, I may have given the impression in my previous comments that no one else has ever you know, been looking at bringing inherent safety into their PHAs, their process hazard analyses. No, certainly not. Yeah. There's a lot of companies, a lot of people out there doing this. Um, and in fact, that work has, has informed us quite a bit. And I think if any of the listeners want to uh, know where to go, there's uh, the third edition of the Inherent Safety Book by the Center for Chemical Process Safety is... Uh, it's a year or year and a half or so out now. And there's, there's lots of... Uh, uh, examples in there and suggestions as to how you can go about bringing ISD into your hazard analysis. So just wanted to mention that and thank you for that uh, opportunity. So to your question, how do we get involved in, in the WorkSAPC project or where did that come from? I, I really have to credit you. You, uh, you. I had met uh, Fahima with the Wood Pellet Association of Canada with Gordon Murray couple of years ago in a, in a different environment entirely, I, I was at UBC visiting and, uh, and spoke to her about the work in biomass and had a very great, you know, interesting discussion and thought, well, maybe, you know, we'll work together in the future. And then, boom, you, you've got, I guess it's been uh, <clears throat> a year, year and a bit ago, you brought the uh, Innovation at Work program with WorkSAPC to my attention. And we got together very quickly, put in a proposal um, with the Wood Pellet Association of Canada, yourself, uh, and the Dalhousie team, and we were successful in having that funded. And one thing that we had in the proposal, a very you know early and necessary step, was to uh, review some existing bow ties for, for uh, dust combustibility 
uh, in the wood pellet industry that had already been developed and then acquire more. Um, and we were, okay, we're going to partner with the Wood Pellet Association to, to do this. But uh, unbeknownst to us, you know, we had gotten funded and then just uh, around that time or a little bit uh, earlier, uh, BC4 Safety Council with uh, Sherry, who we've talked to, and Bill Aternus, uh, and then the folks at Wood Pellet Association started the uh, working on the critical controls project. So we just kind of dovetailed in there. Um, that's the kind way of putting it. Maybe we we inserted ourselves, but we were, we were welcomed with, uh, with open arms. The, the Dalhousie side and you and came in with uh, Wood Pelt Association, BC Forest Safety Council, and with Kaylee, uh, facilitated some early rounds of bow tie analysis with some member companies in the Wood Pellet Association. We, we didn't do in, in, uh, in developing those bow ties, we, we didn't do a strong inherent safety emphasis because we didn't want to overlay that complexity on you know, the development of the bow ties themselves, which which for some uh, companies might be a relatively new way of looking at uh, hazard analysis. So uh, we have some bow ties developed now and there'll be more coming on as the uh, critical controls project uh, continues. And now another master's student at Dalhousie, Eric Brido, is taking those bow ties and running them through our inherent safety protocol, really putting it through a rigorous inherent safety lens and uh, kind of trying to come up with what we call example-based guidance, where we want to be very clear and explicit in saying to people, you could try this, you could consider this, and this is inherently safer design according to this principle. So Eric is, is going through best industry practice guidelines, NFPA standards, the other literature, to develop very specific example-based guidance to use to get inherent safety considerations uh, in, into the bow ties that have been developed. Not to say that bow ties so far that have been developed through this project don't have inherent safety there. They do. You, you, the hammer mill, for example, you know, simplification built strong enough to withstand an explosion. But really what we're doing is we're just exploring all the possible opportunities that we can think of in this project to get more examples uh, for people to consider for inherently safer design. So that's that's how it kind of came about. I hope that makes sense, Chris. It was, a, it was a very fortuitous development. First of all, you putting us in contact again with the Wood Pellet Association of Canada, and then getting involved also with the BC4 Safety Council. Yeah, and it's it's like I kind of said at the outside, I mentioned this last week, it's really nice to see when research can couple with industry during both being done, you know, it's not the, the the research not being put out, and then a couple of years later published, and then industry picks it up and then comes back. This is live time, which means it's even can be messy at some point. So that's okay. <laughs> it's even better that way. But this is you know live time integration of Kaylee, for example, she, you know, working on actual research and and she's finished her master working as a research associate. Then she's going in and actually facilitating workshops with the engineers and operators and managers at pellet facilities. Just really, I, I think it's going to couple the timeline of this work um, and and really inform everyone involved. I'm learning a ton from the employers. I'm learning a ton from the associations. I'm learning a ton from the researchers, of course. It's just really nice to see this work integrated. And, and of course, like all of us nowadays, doing it in the middle of a pandemic. You know, the, I remember the, the very first set of uh, bow tie workshops with the first company that Kaylee was facilitating. You know, she she's in her in her home here in Halifax uh, I think at that time, the restrictions in BC were such that uh, Bill Laternus, 
and Tyler, they were, I think, able to go to site and uh, and sort of be on site from our perspective, working with the people at the company. And but you know, everybody's social distancing and masked up and all of that. So we we, we did that. And then the second set of Bowties, uh, that workshop, uh, there was no travel allowed within British Columbia at the time. So everyone was, you know, Bill and Tyler were remote, Kaylee's here in Halifax, and then the folks on site. So it's it's been an interesting process to say the least. And I really have to credit the uh, everyone, Kaylee and Bill, Tyler, especially the, the companies that are involved. The commitment that they've shown to this process has has really been outstanding, and and the dedication because. You know, these these can be long. These can be you know five six hour events for four or five days in a row. Uh, you don't do these uh, bow ties properly in in a half hour. So great dedication and commitment from everyone involved there, Chris. Well, the nice part is it's not it's not a static thing that you're done with, right? It, it, you're not generally you're going to find some challenges when you do the bow tie and you're probably not going to be able to address those all tomorrow. So it gives you the tool to say, okay, this is what we're doing this month. This is what we're doing this quarter. This is what we're doing this year. This is what we're doing next year. And you keep coming back to it. And it should really be a living, breathing document. Any PHA should be a living, breathing document and come back to quite frequently, but it gives you the understanding and ability to do more analysis to figure out what the best next step is and to actually implement uh, these these safety procedures moving forward. Absolutely. And I, I liken these, um, the bow ties that we're acquiring through these workshops to, uh, the, the, these are the raw data for the Innovation at Work project. You know, it's, it's like if you know, we had a chemical reactor and we're getting pressure and temperature values and reaction rates and so on and conversions, and that's all our raw data. Now, what are we going to do with that? So the bow ties themselves are, are absolute value to the companies, to WPAC, BC Forest Safety Council, and so on. But for us, from the research side of the Innovation at Work grant, we now have a very comprehensive set of bow ties for different scales of operation, different pieces of equipment, you know, that we can take and and run through our inherent safety. I call it the inherent safety lens or the ISD protocol, bring in example-based guidance and, and then feed that back into the loop. So as you said, a PHA is is in many respects never done. There's always room for improvement and, and continuous improvement is is one of the cornerstones of the process safety management. Makes sense to me. I think that sort of ties into probably the, the last question. You know, we've we've now done three three interviews with WPAC and BC4 Safe Council and, and now Dalhousie of uh, this project. Where where are we hoping that things are going to go from here? What's the next steps for for this project for inherently safe design and bow ties? Um, what can people expect to be kind of coming down the tracks with this work? Well, um, obviously, we this project now with us, uh, the Innovation at Work project funded through WorkSafe BC, will will run to the end of this calendar year. Uh, that ties in, I think, with the timeline of the critical controls project. So we'll just be, uh, you know, beavering away to to get everything done that we want to do there. Uh, there'll be some work spilling over, obviously, into uh, the next year in terms of a master's thesis and, and so on. And then from there, uh, we've had a great opportunity through this initial partnership with WPAC on the Innovation at Work uh, proposal uh, that was funded. And now we've brought in uh, BC4 Safety Council. So uh, the, well, the four of us, um, yourself, Chris, with your company, WPAC, BC4 Safety Council, and Dalhousie, we, we've actually put another proposal in 
to WorkSafe BC to build on what they've been doing on process safety management. It's just so exciting to me to see the efforts being done in that province to to incorporate process safety management in what they're calling high hazard industries. You know, this, this notion that process hazards, fires, explosions, the toxic releases, well, those are the events, but, you know, flammable, combustible, toxic materials, that, that these are not unique to the chemical process industries. It's not just chemical plants and oil refineries that, that need to think about process safety. It's, it's other industries like pulp and paper, for example, like wood pellet manufacturing. So we put in a proposal. I don't want to say too much about it. Don't want to jinx things or whatever. Fingers uh, crossed. Yeah, fingers crossed. Uh, well, we hope to, to build on what we've, we've done with uh, PHA, Process Hazard Analysis, and build that into a more systemic look at process safety management uh, for different size companies different industries, uh, one size of process safety management system probably doesn't fit everyone. And I think there's a lot of good research that can be done there. And uh, and we're hoping to continue our partnership. I think the exciting thing is that um, we're committed. Uh, you know, obviously, me and you, my team, your team, we can continue to work uh, regardless of, of what happens with funding, uh, but also with BC Forest Safety Council and WPAC. Um, we want to continue our, our work together because, you know, A, it's uh, it's very interesting, and B, it's very, very practical. And, um, yeah, we, we, have, uh, we have positive thoughts for the future, Chris. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'm looking forward. Like I said, we will come back on in a few months to get um, hopefully perspectives of folks like Bill and maybe Tyler and Kaylee on how it went, hopefully some of the employers, some of the wood pellet facilities themselves. So those of you that are listening to these episodes interested in the process, we will we will come back and talk about, we will evaluate how we did and then we'll go into a new cycle with a new set of projects as well. Um, Dr. Amy, Paul, I want to say thank you for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for talking through this project. Thank you for the work you've done and obviously thank you for influencing me and my career direction. Um, Dust safety science wouldn't have happened if we didn't have that meeting back in 2010 or 11, whenever it was. I was looking for uh, my master's thesis research topic, and uh, you introduced me to the world of dust explosion. So thank you for that, and thank you for coming on today and sharing your, your great knowledge with everyone. My pleasure, Chris. It's it's always fun to chat with you, and uh, I look forward to, uh, to working together more in the future. Awesome. I do, too. Well, I'm sure we'll have you back on the podcast. We won't wait 80 episodes to get you on again. So we'll be talking soon. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Paul. Talk soon. Bye-bye. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney and Dr. Paul Amiot. We were talking about implementing inherently safer design using bow tie analysis for combustible dust hazards. We talked a bit about how Paul got into process safety, into combustible dust, some of his major influences in inherently safer design um, as a concept, as a way of thinking, as a way of, of applying safety in industries that are uh, running processing operations, including those handling combustible dust. We talked about how this fit in with the bigger scope of projects being completed really across Canada, but with a major focus in British Columbia and a major focus on the wood pellet uh, facilities and across Canada as well. So we had Gordon on talking about Wood Pellet Association Canada, their history leading to their safety committee, leading to the work that they've done since then. Uh, BC Forest Safety Council, which is funded by WorkSafe BC as well, their work and involvement with this critical controls project. And then Paul here from Dalhousie University, 
talking about the research aspects of inherently safer design, integrating with bow tie analysis and how that's really been able to couple then with this critical controls project and even as its own project funded through WorkSafe BC's Innovation and Work Grant. So it's really interesting taking these three different episodes that we've done over the last three weeks and just seeing how this project's evolved. There's a lot to it. There's a lot being done that's created that's really useful and valuable for the employers or the companies, really useful for the industry associations, really useful for the researchers. These are the type of projects that we can really move things forward together. We did talk about inherently safer design, some of the concepts around it, starting with the work done by Trevor Kletz. Again, I recommended his biography for anyone who's interested in this area. We'll have links in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 133. We talked about bow tie analysis. What is it? What are some of the elements and how can ISD be incorporated into that? Paul also mentioned a couple other resources. I don't think I got them all, but I did find the inherently safe for chemical processes, that uh, book, A Lifecycle Approach that we will include in the, the resource as well. And there's there's a number of other groups that CCPS, IACHE, many groups around the world have, have started this work. And we're really, well, Paul really, and his group is is taking this, including their experience and then also running with it and try and do increase its value, but also then have this application aspect and in, in particular in this project with wood pellet facilities. We talked about where the project's at, how it fits in with everything else that's going on. Um, and also what's coming down the track. So we're really focused on this process hazard analysis element of process safety management at the moment. And we're hoping that through we'll be working in the future to say, okay, well, what does PSM PSM look like in a mom-pop wood shop? What does it look like in a 50-person wood pellet mill? What does it look like in a six-person metal recycling plant that has just one hammer mill? What does PSM look like in this approach in industries outside the traditional chemical processing industries. I think it's going to have a real meaningful impact and change on combustible dust safety, on keeping workers safe, reducing downtime in facilities that are handling combustible dust. So I'm excited for it. As always, I want to say thank you for listening to the Dust Safety Science Podcast. I appreciate you tuning in, and I, I also really appreciate all the work that you're doing in industries handling combustible dust around the world, making them safer every day. 